Welcome to Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. A windowless warehouse on Charleston's Union Pier conceals a forgotten site of historical significance. Near the present southwest corner of Concord and Pritchard Streets, a projecting point of sand and shells known as the Hard, or Rett's Point, served as a focal point of maritime activity from the dawn of recorded history in South Carolina to the turn of the 19th century. Subsequent wharf construction and landfill obscured the site's colorful history, but the proposed redevelopment of Union Pier presents an opportunity to revive memories of an important local landmark. Before it was reshaped by human hands, the hard was simply a low, wedge-shaped promontory surrounded by marshland located nearly a mile north of a similar headland once identified as Oyster Point, now the southeastern tip of the battery. The hard extended eastwardly into the intertidal zone of the Cooper River along an axis nearly perpendicular to modern East Bay Street. A curving inlet flowing to the northwest facilitated access to the hard and no doubt attracted the attention of turtles, shorebirds, and ancient humans. The site offered a convenient landing point for watercraft and likely served as a waypoint for prehistoric Native Americans traversing to and from settlements on modern Daniel Island, Hobcaw Point, and Mount Pleasant. To this day, the shortest and most direct route from the Charleston Peninsula across the Cooper River is a line drawn from the Hard to that part of Hog Island now called Patriot's Point. Here, as at dozens of coastal sites along the low country of South Carolina, generations of indigenous people might have deposited millions of oyster shells to create a large circular midden or shell ring. Physical evidence of such a structure at the Hard has not yet been found, but its former presence is suggested by the name of a temporary gun battery erected during the American Revolution. British forces occupying Charleston in 1780, likely repeating a phrase used locally, identified the site of a V-shaped battery at the east end of Pinckney Street as a quote-unquote old Indian fort. That same nomenclature was used elsewhere in the colonial southeast to describe ancient shell middens misunderstood by European observers. If a shell ring once stood at the heart, it was likely dismantled by early colonists who distributed the shells to enhance the site's utility. The earthen ramparts of a gun battery erected here in 1779-1780 would have bristled with embedded oyster shells, which perhaps inspired the reapplication of an older place name. The Hard formed the northeasternmost corner of the 1672 plan, or grand model, of Charleston that I described in episode 245, encompassing the eastern portion of two rectangular half-acre lots numbered 48 and 49. Morris Matthews obtained a grant in 1681 for the northernmost lot, number 48, which benefited from water access on two sides thanks to the aforementioned tidal inlet flowing to the north of the Hard. John Cumming, who already owned most of the land to the immediate northwest, received a grant in 1681 for the southern, less valuable half of the Hard, lot number 49. 
Their successors opened a passageway 12 feet wide along the boundary line of the two lots, which became known as Hard Alley. Through a chain of convoluted circumstances, at the turn of the 18th century, Sarah Cook Rett and her husband William Rett acquired the valuable lot number 48, along with approximately 25 acres of adjacent land formerly belonging to John Cumming. From their mansion house, now number 54 Hazel Street, the couple developed a suburban plantation occasionally called Rettsbury, as I described in episode 53. Because the waterfront landing at the Hard anchored its business and domestic activities, the property was more generally known as Rett's Point. A grant issued in 1714 empowered the Rett's and their heirs to claim the tidal inlet and acres of marshland immediately north of the Hard. Several present landmarks, including the Harris Teeter Grocery Store, the antebellum facade of Bennett's Rice Mill, and the Ansonboro Inn, all lie within the boundaries of Rhett's 1714 Marsh Grant, which cemented the family's control of the area for the remainder of the 18th century. To facilitate South Carolina's import-export commerce during the early 1700s, William Rett developed a large wharf near the east end of Unity Alley in the heart of Charleston's colonial waterfront. That commercial structure, which played an important role in the local economy for many decades, was not the sole focus of Rett's work, however. He began his career as a mariner and remained active in the business of ship maintenance for the rest of his life. To accommodate the careening, cleaning, and repair of sailing vessels, Rhett constructed a second wharf at the Hard that extended eastwardly from lot number 48 into the Cooper River. On the adjacent high ground, he erected storage sheds, workshops, and other outbuildings to support a thriving maritime industry. Hundreds of privately owned vessels probably docked at Rett's northern wharf during the first half of the 18th century, but few records of that activity survive. Thanks to the trove of maritime records archived by Britain's Royal Navy, however, we know that several Crown frigates visited the Hard during Rett's lifetime. The 24-gun Swan, for example, repaired battle damage and received new masts here in the spring of 1707. The 20-gun Shoreham offloaded supplies at Colonel Rett's storehouse before careening at the Hard in June 1716. After the Flamborough careened and victualled at Rett's Point in June 1720 without paying, and after the wharf partially collapsed under the weight of the Blandford in March 1722, His Majesty's warships careened elsewhere for the remainder of the colonial period. William Rett served as comptroller of His Majesty's Customs for South Carolina during much of his tenure in the colony, but some of his contemporaries allege that he also dabbled in illegal trade. On several occasions between 1716 and 1722, Rett was accused of receiving clandestine goods from vessels docked at his industrial wharf at the Hard under the pretense of careening or victualling. Rett's death in January 1723 silenced his critics, but other proprietors continued the maritime work he pioneered at the Hard. Sarah Rett, widow of the cantankerous colonel, married former South Carolina Chief Justice Nicholas Trott in 1728. 
Soon afterwards, the couple sold several waterfront lots adjacent to the hard to carpenters and shipwrights who continued the business of building and repairing vessels at this site for several decades. The number of newly built vessels launched from the renamed Trots Point is unknown, but a major hurricane in August 1728 blew one unfinished sloop into the marsh along the northern edge of the hard. Nearly 25 years later, the more memorable hurricane of September 1752 caused another new vessel to be driven off the stocks and wrecked at the hard. The death of Sarah Rhett Trot in 1745 coincided with a number of changes at her Point property. Months before her passing, the South Carolina General Assembly ratified an act that officially extended East Bay Street northward from Craven Bastion across a small wooden bridge over Daniels Creek, now Modern Market Street, to the residences, workshops, and storehouses at the Hard. A 1744 plat of the new bridge and roadway provides a valuable illustration of the waterfront landscape, but it does not depict Rhett's Wharf extending eastward into the Cooper River. Ownership of the plantation known as Rhettsbury, or now Trotts Point, passed in 1745 to Sarah Wright, the nine-year-old granddaughter of Sarah and William Rhett. For the next 20 years, young Sarah's uncle, Thomas Wright, served as the resident manager of the site's various maritime activities. Thomas Wright employed an assistant to look after a timber yard on the hard in the 1750s. One John Smith, who likely held that position as early as 1747, reminded customers via the South Carolina Gazette that anyone landing goods at the Point Wharf was obliged to pay for the privilege immediately, as were the owners or carpenters of, quote, all vessels and boats that make use of any part of the said old wharf to clean, burn, etc., end quote. Smith also mentioned that anyone wanting to cross the Cooper River to Daniel Island or Hobcaw Point would, quote, find a sure passage at any time of the day, a canoe being kept ready for that purpose at Rhett's Point or the Hard, end quote. Thomas Wright himself advertised in 1748 that he charged 20 shillings for any open petty augers or boats to be graved or repaired and 40 shillings for every decked schooner. The hurricane of 1752 likely demolished the remainder of William Rhett's old wooden wharf. By that time, additions of pilings, oyster shells, and ballast stones had reshaped the topography of the hard. Thomas Wright suggested as much in 1757 when he complained about the effects of sustained maritime traffic at the site. For some time past, said Wright, many vessels and boats are graved and repaired at Trot's Point, called the Hard, and many large masts and spars are hauled up and made thereon, whereby much damage has been done to the land by ship carpenters, vessels, and boats, end quote. To establish a more orderly worksite, henceforth, Wright published a detailed schedule of fees and notified, quote, all ship carpenters and owners of vessels or boats that payments will be required for all use made of the hard and for landing all timber, planks, lime, bricks, etc., according to the prices hereunder mentioned, end quote. 
Wright's 1757 list enumerates his fees for the cleaning, graving, and repairing of sloops, schooners, decked and undecked, flats, lime boats, pilot boats, canoes, large and small, yawls, and what he called pleasure boats. It also fixes the prices of masts, large, medium, and small, top masts, bowsprits, and booms, and his charges for landing bulk quantities of firewood, bark, bricks, lime derived from burnt oyster shells, and dimensional lumber deposited at the hard. Wright continued to advertise a variety of lumber and building materials into the 1760s, including the tar, pitch, oil, paint, and other supplies used in ship maintenance. These sources provide a valuable snapshot of life at the heart, where generations of enslaved ship carpenters lived and worked within an evolving and increasingly industrial landscape. Thomas Wright began his career at the Hard as a manager for his young niece, Sarah Wright, who, in 1750, at the age of 14, married James Hazel Jr. of North Carolina. Following Sarah's death at the age of 18, Thomas purchased a small lot at the heart of the Hard from Mr. Hazel and managed the property for his own profit during the last decade of his life. In 1765, shortly before his death, Wright advertised to lease his, quote, brick house on the hard and all the benefit and profit arising from vessels, schooners, and boats, graving, repairing, and building on the hard and for bricks, lime, and lumber landed, end quote. He described the site as a very convenient place to keep a timber yard and a proper place to keep a ferry across the Cooper River. In his last will and testament, Wright bequeathed the hard property to his teenage grandnieces, Susanna Hazel and Mary Hazel. While the widow of Thomas Wright occupied the site until her death, shipwrights like William Tweed, William Harper, George Noddings, and others worked at the hard in the late 1760s and early 1770s. During that same era, vintners like Vivian Lawson, George Mortimer Williams, and William Davis operated taverns at or near the heart that entertained workers and customers waiting for small ferryboats to row them across the Cooper River. The continued maintenance of larger vessels at this location is confirmed by a mishap that occurred in the summer of 1773. On June 8th of that year, the slave ship Edward arrived in Charleston Harbor directly from Africa. After performing the mandatory 10-day quarantine in the harbor, the ship's cargo of, quote, 180 young, healthy, wider Negroes, end quote, was sold on the deck on June 17th. The empty vessel then moved upstream in the Cooper River to undergo routine maintenance before sailing back to Liverpool. While careening at the hard, the ship apparently heeled too far along its longitudinal axis, took on water, and sank in the shallow stream. The vessel was weighed up again shortly afterwards, however, and sailed for England in early August. Maritime activity at the hard continued under a series of proprietors with relatively little change from the death of William Rhett in 1723 until late 1773. That autumn, the Court of Common Pleas divided the plantation known as Rettsbury, or Trot's Point, between Rett's adult great-granddaughters, Susanna Hazel Quince and Mary Hazel Ancrum of North Carolina, who also inherited the hard from their great-uncle, Thomas Wright. 
the court-ordered partition of the old Rett Plantation awarded the hard, as well as the adjacent inlet and marshland, to Mary Ancrum, who afterwards became Mary Ancrum Granger McAllister. Commercial activity at the hard declined during the tumultuous years of the American Revolution. In the post-war 1780s, new proprietors to the south of Rett's Point began reshaping their land to maximize its utility. The southern edge of the Hard had long hosted maritime activity in the shadow of the Rett family heirs, but the new neighbors now took the lead. By 1787, for example, merchant Florian Charles May acquired the eastern half of Grand Model Lot No. 49 and erected a long wooden wharf that extended farther into the Cooper River than the property of his immediate neighbors. Suddenly, and for the first time, the topographical advantages of the hard were overshadowed by nearby human construction. Although Mary McAllister obtained a grant from the state government in 1787 empowering her to extend her property rights farther eastward, just like Mr. May, she made no further investments in the hard before her death in 1794. In November 1800, Mary's son, James Hazel Ancrum, sold, quote, a parcel of land distinguished and known by the name of the Hard, end quote, to a pair of prosperous ship carpenters, William Pritchard and son. Booming exports of South Carolina cotton at the turn of the 19th century triggered a profusion of wharf construction to the north, south, and east of the Hard that reached farther into the Cooper River. When the Pritchards agreed with their southern neighbor, Florian Charles May, and northern neighbor, Philip Gadsden, to create Concord Street through the eastern edge of their respective properties in 1801, they jointly widened Hard Alley to 20 feet and ceded it to the city of Charleston as a public thoroughfare. The Pritchards erected a long wooden wharf in the early 1800s that extended their commercial reach farther into the Cooper River, but their work did not immediately entomb the natural topography of the hard. The headland of sand and shells, now on the west side of Concord Street, remained visible and washed by the daily tides into the 1820s. William Pritchard, the elder, subdivided the Hard in 1823 into 11 residential lots bounded by Hard Alley, East Bay, Pritchard, and Concord Streets, but the waterlogged property attracted only commercial developers. Maritime activity around the now landlocked Hard continued to expand during the remainder of the 19th century, dominated by the erection of large cotton warehouses owned by the Union Cotton Compress Company, the nucleus of the present Union Pier. Their successors, the Charleston Terminal Company, usurped Hard Alley in late 1905 and triggered a protracted dispute with the city of Charleston about the unauthorized obliteration of a long-standing public right-of-way. Four years later, the city agreed to close the colonial-era passageway in exchange for a strip of land to widen nearby Pritchard Street to its present breadth. The city of Charleston purchased the former Hard and numerous other Cooper River waterfront properties in 1921 to create the Port Utilities Commission, hoping to better manage the privately owned wharves that had languished for decades after the Civil War. The economic decline caused by the Great Depression and the rapid growth of the North Charleston Navy base foiled the city's hopes of managing a modern public waterfront, however. 
1942, the Municipal Port Utilities Commission transferred ownership of their extensive portfolio of docks and wharves to the newly created South Carolina Ports Authority. The state ports authority's large-scale expansion of Union Pier over the course of the 20th century supplanted maritime traditions established at the hard generations earlier and erased its physical vestiges. Despite these changes, documentary evidence of the site's early history preserves an important story. The natural topography of the hard formed the nucleus of a vibrant cultural landscape that evolved over three and a half centuries into the present Union Pier. To acknowledge the site's deep and diverse legacy, references to the hard merit inclusion in plans for its post-industrial future. Charleston County Public Library is your home for local history. To explore our resources and programs, and to read an illustrated transcript of this podcast, point your web browser to ccpl.org. Thanks for listening to the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.